beautiful playing there. So this morning, I wanted to start off this little story that I heard. And uh, it's about a man who was stranded on a deserted island. And uh, he had been marooned there for apparently five long years. And finally, one day, he was found and he was rescued. And as his rescuers came, came ashore, they were astonished to hear how he had survived for that long all by himself. And uh, as they were climbing in the boat, the rescuers noticed something kind of odd. Off in the distance, they saw three grass huts. Three grass huts. And they said, wait a minute. We thought you were here alone. What's up? There's three huts up there. And he goes, oh, oh, that's fine. He says, the first one, that's, that's where I lived. And uh, the second one, that's, that's, where, that's where I go to church. And they go, oh, okay, well, well, what about the third one? He says, oh, that one. That's where I used to go to church. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny, right? But one of the saddest indictments of the church is the vast number of denominations that we have, right? See, this poor man couldn't even get along with himself. We all say that we want peaceful relationships, and yet many Christian churches and homes are marked by frequent conflict. And the reasons may be many and they may be varied. Some are for le legitimate reasons and others are not. I mean, we kind of joke about how many churches have split over the color of the carpet, right? We joke about that. It's a sad reality. We often put a spiritual face on our side of things to make it look as if we're defending the truth. We, we are standing on principle. And there certainly is a place for defending the truth. As you know, and we've talked about that. But there is a right and a wrong way to contend for the truth. Paul wrote in, in, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, Paul doesn't say not to get in disputes about the truth, but he says to correct people with kindness, with patience, and, and with gentleness. The churches that James was writing to were having conflicts. And we'll see more of that next week in chapter 4. James began chapter 3 warning that not many should become teachers because we will incur a stricter judgment. And then he broadened this to deal with a problem we all wrestle with, the evil of a destructive tongue. We talked about taming the tongue last week, the harm that may be caused with the words that we speak. And he continues along this thought 
this week. So let's look at today's scripture, James chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 13 through 18. James chapter 3, 13 through 18. You open your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be a pew Bible right in front of you, and that's on page 1290. 1290. So let's read God's word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. Our text, James may still be focusing at least on part on those who would become teachers. Teachers are especially prone to boast in their knowledge and wisdom. They may easily fall into jealousy against those who may have a bigger audience than them. They may succumb to wrong motives. They may begin to to serve selfish ambition, trying to attack people to themselves instead of Christ. There's no shortage of mega-brand preachers in the world today, is there? So our text especially applies to all of us who teach God's Word. But it also applies to every believer. James is showing us God's wisdom will lead to peaceful relationships. And he contrasts it with worldly wisdom that inevitably leads to conflict. The things he writes here apply to peaceful, harmonious relationships in the church, but also in our homes, in every other part of our life. James was writing to a church under pressure. We've talked about that many times. The pressures of the culture around them, the trials and the temptations that they were going through. When under pressure, a church can split into factions. Back then, there was no formal clergy, no formal ordination process in the early church. So self-styled teachers could emerge. They could claim to have wisdom. As each teacher promoted his brand of wisdom, they gained a following. The community of believers was often divided. Unfortunately, there was a problem in the New Testament church, same as today. There were factions or divisions within groups or cliques. In Acts 6, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because they felt their widows were being overlooked. That's when they began, he told them to to seek out among yourselves. At 1 Corinthians, Paul had to address the very real problem as people would declare, well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Now, James addresses part of the reason behind these problems. In typical fashion, James sets his trap, and then he springs it. A very, very straightforward question. 
And that's our first point. The trap and then the test in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? You ask that question. Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, perhaps some of the self-appointed teachers were thinking, well, oh, you talking about me? Huh. Well, I'm glad that you recognize my, my talent and my skill. My, my reputation must be spreading. Even James has heard about it now back in Jerusalem. And there's no nonsense style. James then springs the trap. By his good conduct, let him show his works and meekness of wisdom. And that's the test. See, it's easy to claim to have wisdom. James says, prove it. Prove it. Show me your wisdom with your life. The old King James Bible uses the word conversation. His good conversation. But in 1611, that word did not refer to speech, but to your way of life. The, NA, the NASB says good behavior. That's the first test. If you claim wisdom and understanding, show it first with your good behavior, your exemplary lifestyle. As with faith, wisdom, and understanding that are demonstrated in righteous, godly living, that are not demonstrated in, in righteous, godly living, are devoid of any spiritual value. They're worthless. Second, James admonishes readers to show it with their good deeds. All the activities and the works they're involved in. Do they show it? Do they show wisdom? We talked about that a bit a couple weeks ago. Third, it should be demonstrated in an attitude of meekness, or otherwise translated as gentleness. People who are wise in their own eyes are generally pretty arrogant about it, aren't they? which makes sense since an elevated view of self is based on pride. Jesus taught that we would, would know true teachers from false ones by how they lived. Matthew seven fifteen through 23, Jesus warned against wolves in sheep's clothes, how you would recognize them by their fruit. Good teachers will exemplify good life disciplines, their lives, their activities, their accomplishments, their actions will reveal the true heart of their Christian faith. And this is also true of every other believer. Our, our works show where our heart is invested. They show where our heart is invested. Our attitudes and motives, they show what we really care about. Do our attitudes and actions match? You claim to have wisdom and understanding. Talk is cheap, James says. Prove it in the way you live. James set up the test. Would you pass? Need to ask, we all need to ask ourselves, would we pass that test? Do our lives reflect what we claim? Well, wisdom is important. And the Jewish people recognize the importance of wisdom. But knowledge is not enough. You have to have wisdom to know how to use knowledge correctly. All of us know people who are extremely intelligent. 
They can't seem to accomplish the simplest of tasks, can they? All books bark, but not a lick of common sense, we say. Knowledge is all facts and figures, the ABCs and the one, two, threes. And it allows us to take things apart, to know the individual pieces. That's knowledge. I can take this apart, and I know all the different pieces and parts. People can have all kinds of biblical knowledge, the names, the places, the events. But wisdom enables us to understand how to put it all together. How does it all come together? How to relate God's truth to daily life the way God intended it. The thing is, wisdom can have two different sources. Two different sources. There is the wisdom from God above. And there is the wisdom of man from the world. And we're going to take a look at both of these this morning. The false wisdom of the world will contrast that with the true wisdom from above. We're going to look at the evidence of each, the characteristics, and then the results of both. So first, we're going to look at false wisdom. We see this in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That's the evidence. James gives four markers that are evidence and motivation of false wisdom. The first one that he shows us here is bitter jealousy. And this is the worst kind of jealousy. This is an anger at the accomplishment of others. You see what someone else has and you want it. You want it so much that you become resentful that they have it and you don't. And you may become obsessed with it. And it can grow into a mindset that becomes not so much about the object itself anymore, but it becomes a sense of entitlement. I deserve to have this. I deserve to have this. And you become resentful because they have it, and you don't. And it can turn into attacking or undermining the ones who have it. It takes a focus off of God and what he has given you. As teachers, if another preacher across town has a bigger congregation we can become jealous. Boy, people sure appreciate what he has to say. I don't know why. He uses the NLT. And he doesn't even know any of the Greek. As a body, if that church has a bigger, better building or facilities, we can become jealous of what they have. Well, they don't even use that building. Look at that building they have. They don't even use it. Boy, if we had that building, we'd have all kinds of soup suppers and all kinds of things that we could do. Jealousy. But as long as he's preaching the truth, we should think, praise God, the truth is going forth. And if they are using the building to advance the kingdom, we should rejoice that they have tools to do it. But worldly wisdom doesn't seek God's glory. It's rooted in jealousy and self-ambition. That's our next marker, selfish ambition. It comes from the Greek, eurythia, and it it comes from the meaning to spin thread, to spin thread for personal gain, 
At that time, there were people who would hire themselves out to sow and things like that. And later, it became, and, and they would do it for, for money. They would hire themselves out, and they would, they would charge higher and higher rates. And later, it became closely associated with those who sought high political office or other positions of influence and power. It was used of personal gratification and self-fulfillment at any cost. It has no room for others, much less genuine humility. It's the ultimate self-elevation rampant in the world today, isn't it? The world is full of selfish ambition. And it is the antithesis of what the humble, selfless, giving, loving, and obedient child of God is called to be. Ambition is good when it's used to help the well-being of others. But selfish ambition is not about that. It says, I'm going to climb to the top. I'm going to get mine. And I don't care who I have to climb over to get it. It's the very opposite of Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's selfish ambition. And it's also arrogant. It's boastful, it says. The Greek means stop being arrogant. Again, it's easy for those to teach to fall into pride, thinking, I'm right, I'm right. And those who disagree with me are either stupid or they're sinning. Paul says knowledge puffs up in 1 Corinthians. Everyone should study and become knowledgeable in the things of God. Everyone should. We all should know what we believe, and we should all be able to support it from Scripture. But we should also be on guard against a pride that can so easily creep in. If we start parading our knowledge around, using it to, to put others into their place, we're not displaying godly wisdom. When our true motives are exposed, our defense is to become arrogant. Worldly wisdom wants others to be impressed with you and, and your accomplishments. It's all about trying to control the perception of others, of you. It's arrogant. It's boastful. Fourth, it denies the truth, James says. A professed Christian who is jealous, self-centered, and arrogant is a fraud. To claim otherwise is to be false to the truth. Because it utterly contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ, the clear teaching of the New Testament. There is nothing more characteristic of fallen, unredeemed people than being dominated by self. James is saying that if a person claims to belong to God and have the wisdom of God, but his life is motivated by arrogant, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, he is simply lying against the truth. Whatever he may claim, he is living a lie. The evidence of false worldly wisdom is bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogant, it's boastful, and it denies the truth. And the characteristics, next James presents three of the most distinct and basic characteristics of false ungodly wisdom. He says, which is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Verse 15 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There's three great enemies of the believer. The world, the flesh, and the devil. James doesn't mince any words. It corresponds to the three characteristics of false wisdom James mentions here. It's earthly. It's of the world. It's unspiritual. It's of the flesh. It's demonic. It's from the devil. First, earthly. Earthly. This wisdom is bound to this earth. It's bound to here. It stands in contrast to which God originates in heaven. There is nothing transcending or of any lasting value in earthly wisdom. But there's never any shortage of people with an opinion, is there? Never any shortage of people with an opinion. No shortage of people who claim to have the answers to the world's problems. We just need to listen to them because they're smart. Just like everything else material, it's subject to corruption and decay. By definition, it's restricted to things that man can theorize, what man can discover and accomplish by himself. It has no place for spiritual truth or illumination. It's a closed system of of man's own making, his own choosing. It's motivated by pride, selfish ambition, arrogance, and self-interest. It's shown in a society that says, do your own thing. Look out for number one. It pervades philosophy, education, politics, economics, sociology, psychology, and almost every other aspect of contemporary human life. Libraries, universities, governments, and every fountain of this world's wisdom will be destroyed. It will not last. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. False wisdom is earthly. It's bound to hear. And it's unspiritual. It's fleshly and unspiritual. Earthly earthly wisdom has no understanding of spiritual concepts because it originates from natural man. 2 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. All of their feelings, their desires, their appetites, their standards, and their impulses are grounded in a humanistic view of the world and of man, and is based on human feelings, on human reasoning alone. This kind of wisdom not only feeds the flesh, but it's foolish. 1 Corinthians 1.20. So where does this lead the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. False worldly wisdom is unspiritual. Beyond that, it's demonic. Although it is human, earthly, and fleshly, its root source is Satan himself. Satan has always promised wisdom to those he has tempted, hasn't he? Beginning in Genesis 3, where Satan successfully deceived Eve, 
And it continue, continuing through the entire Bible, there is the wisdom of Satan at work fighting against the wisdom of God. Satan convinced Eve that she would be like God. He promised her wisdom. He told her that this tree would make her wise. And ever since that event, people have continued to believe Satan's lies and have tried to become their own gods. And it will call us, cause us to follow after sinful, selfish, and destructive desires. And that can produce a, a climate even within the church, at the home, and at work that damages relationships and undermines our testimonies. And that leads to the results of verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. A moment ago, we, we discussed the, the evidence of earthly wisdom. Where these things exist, there will be devastating results. One thing leads inevitably to the next in a, in a sequence of cause and effect. Disorder. Disorder comes from akatastasia. I'm not real good with these Greek words, but they're important. And it has the basic meaning of instability. Instability. It came to be used to describe a state of confusion, disarray, disturbance, tumults, even of rebellion and anarchy. Where you have bitter envying, there you will have confusion and disorder. 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. If there is disorder, you can be sure it is not of God. Anarchy goes hand in hand with confusion, too. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Authority is questioned, disobeyed, and even openly disdained. The church becomes ineffective and disorganized as a result. Disorder. And every vile practice. And this is the broadest possible category of the, of the bad results of human wisdom. Where you have strife, you will have every evil work, James says. Every evil work. Jealousy, arrogance, pride, unforgiveness, lying, stealing, gossiping, on and on and on and on. Everything. Ambition is good until it becomes self-centered. Then it degenerates into a get-ahead-at-all-costs attitude. Step on as many heads as possible as you climb the ladder of success. Nothing of, of ultimate good results from human wisdom. Disorder in every vile practice is bound to break out in churches. Where people are pursuing their own selfish concerns, their own selfish causes, rather than the, the good of the body as a whole. The result of a false worldly wisdom is we become like the world. We rely on the false wisdom of the world, we will be like the world. Every 
vile practice. Now I contrast that with the wisdom from above. We see that in verses 17 through 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is shown is sown in peace by those who make peace. True wisdom has its origin in Jesus Christ. It comes down from heaven and is God's gift to every believer who asks for it. For every believer who asks for it. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Wisdom is not, not limited to a few select people. God's wisdom is available to everyone who desires it, everyone who asks for it. As you read God's word, if you ask him to reveal the truth of it, he will reveal the truth of it to you. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. Verses 17 and 18 are refreshing, and they're a welcome contrast to the verses before. Now, following the same basic pattern for false wisdom, James lays out the evidence, the characteristics, and the results of true godly wisdom. First, the evidence. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. James underscores the primacy of purity when he writes, first, pure. Without purity, it is not wisdom from above. This is the evidence that it is from God. The Greek word hagne means to be innocent, unmixed, untainted by any impurity. It's not mingled. It's not mixed. It's the original. Mix in the slightest bit of man's wisdom and you have changed the formula. Add the slightest error to truth, and it is no longer the truth. Remember Coke several years ago? And they tried to, to rebrand, and they came out with a new formula, new Coke, right? You just change the formula a little bit. It's no longer Coke. People were in an uproar about it. Same thing here. We should be the same way. We should not allow the world to come in and twist God's truth. It's not the real thing. Now, it may point to, to moral purity, but in the context here, it especially has a sense of being free from any jealousy or, or, or selfish ambition. In other words, it's, it's focusing on our motives. We seek wisdom so that we can lord it over others or to use it for our own advantage or power it's not pure. It's not godly. Our motive for seeking wisdom or for using wisdom must always be to glorify God and to build up the person whom we're speaking to. It should always be the motive. We especially need to keep this in mind when we get into doctrinal disputes with anyone. It's easy to want to win the argument. To win the argument. 
But you can destroy the person you're arguing with if you're not wise. Or you may want to to prove that you are right so that you look good. And you excuse your pride by telling yourself that you are contending for the faith. Before you jump into any doctrinal dispute, ask first, how important is this issue? How important is this? In the light of God's glory and this person, person's spiritual well-being, is it worth the cause? The hurt, is it worth the hurt it can cause? Is it worth it? Is it as big as I think it is? Or am I, am I just trying to make myself right? Am I trying to win, come out on top, show my superiority? Ask God to reveal the truth of that and allow that to guide you. You also need to remember how difficult it was for you to change your mind on an issue. Think back through your progressive sanctification as the Lord convicted you of certain things. How long did it take for you to come around on certain things? takes time sometimes to be gracious in granting that to the other person. Remember again Paul's words about not quarreling, being, being kind and patient, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Ask God to open the, the other person's eyes and grant them repentance. Your motives must be pure or else you're not acting in godly wisdom. True godly wisdom is pure, holy as he is holy. The evidence, the motive True godly wisdom is pure. Next, the characteristics. He lays out a list of the characteristics. Truly, true godly wisdom is peaceable. Peaceable. Seeking peace in relationships is is not a minor theme in the Bible, is it? Just after counseling husbands and wives in their relationships, Peter quotes Psalm 34 in in, in 1 Peter 3.11. He says, Turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Seek. You must seek it. You must want to find it. You must go and look for it. Pursue. Chase after it. Go and get it. These words apply to all relationships. Paul also stressed the importance of seeking peace. Ephesians 4.3 says that we are to be diligent to to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Seek peace and pursue it with diligence. If you're always stirring up controversy over petty issues, you are not acting with godly wisdom. While we should never compromise doctrine or essential truth, 
Neither should we fight over minor matters. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. This gentle, there's not a, a perfect English word for the word used here, but it can be understood to have a, 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 a sense of forbearance. Another word would be considerate. This is the opposite of, of self-seeking. does not demand its own rights. To be gentle and considerate is to make allowance for others. To gather all the facts before giving an opinion. Understand their point of view. To temper justice with mercy. Not harsh, even when right, in dealing with those who differ. The kind of treatment we would like to receive from others. And this reasonable, reasonable, euphethis, it's compliant, it's ready to obey, teachable, compliant and not stubborn. It was used of a man who willingly submitted to military discipline, just as good soldiers willingly follow orders from their supervisors. People with heavenly wisdom willingly follow God's orders and they respond to his correction. In other words, they're, they're quick to hear. The wise man is willing to listen to others' views. They're willing to change if he's proved wrong. An attitude that doesn't think too highly of himself. This is a quality of the first beatitude from Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're reasonable. And they're merciful. Again, this is very clearly responds to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus often underscored the importance of mercy. Luke 6.36, he said, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Being merciful means not only having compassion for the person who is suffering, apart from anything that they did, apart, through no fault of his own, but also showing compassion to one who is suffering because of his own fault. God is merciful to us in spite of the fact that our problems usually are from our, our own sins and rebellion, right? But while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for our sins. We extend the mercy that we have received to other undeserving sinners. We show mercy to people, to needy people who do not deserve it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be mercy. That's what mercy is. Mercy is, is not giving people what they deserve. They deserve punishment. We deserved punishment, but God was merciful. God's wisdom was full of God's gracious forgiveness. We should be willing to forgive even when the problems we are facing are someone else's fault. We should be merciful and full of good fruits. God's love leads to practical action, helping and serving others. James is pointing back to what he said in, in chapter 2, that our faith must show itself in practical good deeds. If we see someone in need and do nothing to help, what good is that? Galatians 5, 22 through 23 but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, 
Godly wisdom is not theoretical, but it's practical. It rolls up its sleeves and it takes action. It gets to work. It's full of good fruits. And it's impartial. The word uh, is used only here in the New Testament. It's not the same word that we talked about um, a few weeks ago, showing partiality. This word means without uncertainty, unambiguous, undivided, wholehearted. It may mean impartial in the sense of not taking size based on a clique or, or personal cronyism. Well, that's my friend, so I'm on their side. It's, it's me and my pals against you and your pals. Treating everyone equally without favoritism. But also means undivided in the sense of unwavering loyalty to God. That's somehow, sometimes how it's translated. Unwavering. James will hit this in, in chapter 4. He makes the point you cannot be a friend of the world and of God at the same time. Godly wisdom does not play politics with the truth, shading it according to your personal advantage. The wise person does not take sides in a dispute when he serves as an arbitrator. He is able to become, he is able to avoid becoming personally involved in showing favoritism. Well, this is my friend, so I'm going to take their side in this situation. Instead, it holds unservingly to the truth in love. That old saying about there's three sides to every story, right? There's his side, her side, and there's the truth. We should not be yes men. We should stand on God's side. Whatever the situation is. Seventh and finally, godly wisdom is sincere. It's without hypocrisy. There are no hidden agendas or motives in in the judgment of a wise person. What you see is not a mask or a cover-up. What you see is what you get. The word was used originally of Greek actors who played a part on a stage. Douglas Moo comments, The person characterized by wisdom from heaven will be stable, trustworthy, transparent. The kind of person consistently displaying the virtues of wisdom and on whom one can rely for advice, counsel. God's wisdom makes people genuine. Because of that, they can be a reliable source of advice. They seek to hold to all the characteristics of godly wisdom. And that all leads to the results found in verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. His point is simple. You reap what you sow. If a farmer sows corn, he reaps corn, not beans. If you sow peace, you will reap peace. If you, if you sow selfishness and strife, you will reap conflict. But don't miss the fact that a harvest is not accidental. No farmer sits around doing nothing all year, then goes out into the field and looks, whoa, whoa, look at this bountiful harvest. 
No, if there's a harvest, it's in part because he has worked hard to cultivate that harvest. If you see a church or a home where there is peace, it's because, that, because the members have worked to cultivate peace. They've listened to one another. They've respected one another. They've judged their own selfish, selfishness, their own pride. They've sought to live in accordance with godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. And it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. The world is looking for peace without righteousness. The world chases after it all the time, claiming they want peace. But true peace only comes through righteousness. Isaiah 32, 17. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. Now there, there have been disagreements for as long as there have been people. Settling arguments peacefully in English pubs has often been very difficult. So in 1955, the Guinness Brewing Company decided that an official record was needed to pacify its customers. The Guinness Book of World Records was created. It's been a bestseller ever since. By 1987, it has sold more than any other copyrighted book in publishing history. We have a far better bestseller to help the U.S. to live peaceably. The Word of God. But because of selfishness, pride, jealousy, many Christians use that same Bible to attack others, to justify themselves. Jesus, James wants us to apply godly wisdom to our lives and our relationships. Is there peace in your home? Is there peace in your home? Are you at peace with those in this church? If not, check what kind of seed you're sowing. If you're sowing worldly wisdom, you'll reap disorder and every evil thing. But if you sow God's wisdom, you'll reap peace. There are two kinds of wisdom to choose from. There's two kinds to choose from. The false worldly wisdom and true godly wisdom. We must choose wisely. It's a choice. It's a choice which one you accept, which one you follow after. The world has no shortage of opinions, no shortage of people who say they have the answer. Just follow what they say and you'll be okay. You'll get what you want. To be shown as mature Christians and reap a harvest of peace and righteousness, we must get our wisdom from above. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father God, we come before you again grateful and thankful for your word that you have given us. Thankful for the lessons that you have here for us. And Father, the, the straightforward reminder, the straightforward test that James has for us here. What wisdom are we following after? Father, we, we need to ask ourselves that question. It is so easy for us to chase after the world's wisdom. They claim to know what we need. And we can look and we can see others who seem to be succeeding and, and think, well, maybe, maybe they're right. It seems easier. But we know in the end, as we look at the world, we look at the strife in, in every evil deed, that their, their worldly wisdom leads to nothing of lasting value. Father, I just pray that you would help us to, to seek after your wisdom, that we would seek, diligently seek your word, that we would diligently seek your help, that your, your Holy Spirit would come in and, and help us to understand the truth of what your word tells us. I pray that you would help us not to take those verses and twist them to, to fit our personal desire, our personal selfish motive, Use that as, as some justification to, to push people or things in a direction that we want it to go, that we would truly follow what you have called us to do. Father, I pray that you would help us to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit because we know that that is the only way we will be able to do it. Can't do it in our power. That's what the world does. So again, I, I pray that you would come into each of our lives and help us to do this for your glory, for your church, and for your kingdom. We give you thanks for all that you will do in the name of Jesus. Amen.